traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Season 1 had Mr. Denton on Doomsday and Execution. Season 2 had Dust and 100 Yards Over the Rim. But by the time Season 3 rolls around, you'd almost think that the Twilight Zone was gradually turning into a Western anthology show. The Passers-By, The Grave, Still Valley, The Hunt, Showdown with Rance McGrew, sort of, and now the episode that we'll be discussing tonight. Not strictly all westerns in the cowboy sense, but certainly a marked increase in the depiction of the Old West and the more rural side of America. We all have an idea of the Twilight Zone in our heads, that combination of words and music and images that make it what it is to each of us. And if I think of it, the essence of the Twilight Zone on that instinctive level is more the urban aspect of it. But the episodes that I've just mentioned and the episode we'll be discussing tonight show that it's about more than just the urban America. And the American countryside is just as much a part of the Twilight Zone as the city. And as tonight's episode begins, we'll see a couple of children who might as well be Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, peeking through the window of a tiny country church house as this small American town buries one of its own. Brothers and sisters, we are congregated here today to pay homage to our dear brother, Jefferson Myrtlebank. <laughs> we all know that Jeff Myrtlebank was a good boy. He didn't always show up to Sunday school on Sunday, but we never saw him at the bootleggers on Saturday night either. Amen. We're all going to miss this fine youth. The good Lord must have had a powerful reason to want to take him so young in life. Hallelujah. But we all know that the Lord moves in mysterious ways. And today... As the town runs screaming and a man sits up in his coffin, we realise that it might just have been a little too early for the last rites of Jeff Metalbank. Time, the mid-twenties. Place, the Midwest. The southernmost section of the Midwest. We were just witnessing a funeral. A funeral that didn't come off exactly as planned, due to a slight fallout from the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on February 23rd, 1962, written by Montgomery Pittman and directed by Montgomery Pittman. 
Sadly, this is the final outing for the writer-director Monty Pittman in The Twilight Zone. As I mentioned when we first encountered him, sadly Pittman died at the young age of 45. Now, Pittman actually died on June 26, 1962, almost a year after he filmed this episode, which he did in July of 1961. The actor Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., who was the lead star of 77 Sunset Strip, recalled that his friend Pittman became ill at 45 with a tumour on the side of his neck that grew rapidly to grapefruit size. He did have it removed, but it left a gaping hole in his neck, which he covered with a handkerchief. And the tumour was treated as cancer, but didn't go into remission and sadly Pittman soon died. So let's again just briefly go over what he brought to the show. He directed Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up and Dead Man's Shoes, and he wrote and directed to The Grave, and now The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank. So when we look back at these, I think this is a really respectable body of work in the show, and the fact that he was both writer and director made him quite unique among Twilight Zone contributors. He doesn't really get spoken about in the same breath as your Charles Beaumont or your Richard Matheson's, but I do think within this body of Twilight Zone work, mainly with the ones he actually wrote as well as directed, he did have a voice that seemed to quietly slip into the show and fit quite well. It wasn't aping Rod Serling, but it seemed to have an understanding of what the Twilight Zone was, and he was quite comfortable in that place. So I do think it is, of course, sad that he passed so young, but I also think that it's sad that he couldn't go on to get even more episodes under his belt and really cement himself as one of the Twilight Zone heavyweights. But for what he did do, I think Monty Pittman does deserve our respect and our thanks. So our rod sailing opening narration, not much really to latch onto here. A clumsy whip pan and a pretty short intro. Now a few episodes ago, I don't recall which one, but Martin Grams Jr. wrote in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that the sailing intros seemed to get shorter from that point on. Now I disagreed because there were a few lengthy ones after that, but the last couple of episodes have been really quite short, so we'll keep an eye on that, hopefully there are some good ones still to come. But this pre-narration sequence as a whole I think is pretty good, it's got a great little location and a real hook. And our opening scene shows the main character, Jeff Myrtlebank, sitting up in his coffin during his funeral. Now the actor, James Best, while they were filming this, put a pencil in the lid of the coffin so it wouldn't be completely shut. And after Jeff gets up out of his coffin and Rod Sailing says his piece, he lumbers out of the church house to the horror of the townspeople. Now we are about six years before the birth of the modern zombie movie when George Romero released Night of the Living Dead in 1968 and we're four years before the Hammer film, The Plague of Zombies, which, although not strictly featuring the Romero-esque zombie, is one of those important stepping stones towards that movie. 
But of course, those films aren't the first to feature the reanimated dead. And when we hear Jeff's heavy footsteps and see his stiff posture as he lumbers through the doorway, it's clear that the episode is leading us down the garden path and maybe riffing on an earlier movie classic, James Whale's Frankenstein and the films that followed that. Surely the most famous reanimated dead at this point. So if you're watching the episode for the first time, it's a great way to grab you because we really don't know how this is going to play out. Is it a prank? Is he a zombie? What effect is he going to have on this town? Is it going to be a horror episode? Well, not quite. If we had to categorise it, we might actually put it in that most dreaded Twilight Zone category, the comedy. Who in tarnation put me in that coffin? Brethren, let's not give way to panic. Long-time listeners will know that in all of the episodes we've reviewed, the comedies are probably the ones that come off the worst. And we've discussed why that is the case. Is it because comedy isn't Sailing's forte? Or is it that comedy doesn't really travel down the ages particularly well? I'd say though, in the case of Jeff Metalbank, quite early on, it distinguishes itself as a different kind of Twilight Zone comedy. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickery refers to it as gentle country comedy. And I think that's the key to it for me. It's not really going for the big laughs and the humour is more on the gentle side. So when you compare it to something quite broad like Mr. Dingle the Strong, it goes for the more amusing lines rather than the big laughs. So if one of those lines that's supposed to be funny doesn't really hit, that's okay, because the fall isn't so big compared to a big, broad gag that doesn't really play anymore. So that's the gentle part, but what about the country part? A lot of comedies will portray country folk as quite simple and at times a little dim. You know, look at movies like Kingpin, where the Amish Randy Quaid teams up with the city dweller Woody Harrelson, or National Lampoon's Vacation, where again, Randy Quaid plays Cousin Ed. And I guess this Twilight Zone as well jumps on that stereotype. Praise be, we ain't lost you after all, son. I know what it is. I know what it is. It's a miracle that happened here in our county. Medical term for it is Epso Suspendo Animation. Very rare. Matter of fact, there's been only 30 cases in the past 1,500 years. Ain't you just trying to cover up for your own miscalculations, Doc? I ain't never heard of no sickness like that. It ain't likely you would. Only 30 cases in 1,500 years. All them in Europe. Best thing for you to do is quit trying to slander my name and take that boy home, give him some soup. Now the Twilight Zone influence gets everywhere. Would you believe that Epso Suspendo Animation is the name of an electronica band in Florida? The Twilight Zone really does get everywhere. Now the show shifts two weeks into Jeff's future after he's been getting back into the rhythm of his life. He's at home having eaten breakfast and he's off out to do some work. And it's here that the after effects of his return start to really become apparent. 
not with Jeff himself, he seems fine to us, but with everyone else around him. I'm real concerned. I, I just don't like the way he's behaved the last two weeks. What do you mean? He's different. Not like he was at all. Seems same to me. He only ate two eggs again. Well, ever since he sprouted teeth, he's been having three eggs at breakfast. Well, a man's taste can change. And he goes around fiddling with things night and day. And the way he goes at that hard work. Why, he was never that friendly with work before. Yes, sir, that's true, Dad. After this scene, Jeff's sister, Liz Mailbank, played by Vicky Barnes in her only credited role, skips out to a row of small mailboxes, and on one of them, we see the name M. Pittman, a little nod to our director. So because Jeff is under such scrutiny, people start to pick up on the slightest little thing. So there are a couple of things at play here. Fiction, especially horror fiction, will often have a person come back from the dead. But when they come back, they come back wrong. And that can depend on a couple of different things. Is it a case of part of them is missing now? Or is it the case that something else has hijacked them and jumped on board for the journey back? So this is something that you can play with to keep the audience on their toes, depending on what you want to do with the story. So surely Jeff's closest family would know if something is wrong with them. But on the other hand, are they just being too nosy? Are they seeing things that aren't really there? We'll come back to that a little bit later on, but for the time being, why don't we scrutinise our leading man, James Best, who plays Jeff Myrtlebank. We first met James Best in another historic Twilight Zone, The Grave, earlier on in the season, where he was a supporting character, and that one too was a Monty Pittman episode. And we'll see James Best again in the episode Jess Bell. So does he have a face for westerns because the Twilight Zone seems to think so? Well, maybe not so much a face, but he certainly has a voice. He was a southern gentleman born in Kentucky, but when he was orphaned at three years old, he then moved to Indiana with his adopted family. He served in World War II, and it was in the army that he began his acting career. When he returned to the US, he toured with numerous acting shows until a Universal Scout spotted him and put him under contract. So his screen career began in 1950, and there are a slew of films that I'm not really familiar with, but what you do notice is that he certainly did do his fair share of westerns. Not exclusively, but clearly his good looks and that accent made him prime western material, so his bio is a tick list of the more well-known and some obscure westerns of the time. But for a generation of kids like me, he put that accent to good use, because he'll always be Sheriff Roscoe Coltrane, from the Dukes of Hazard. Now the writer of his IMDB bio said that his part in the Dukes of Hazard was beneath him, implying that he was a better actor 
than the material that brought him his biggest amount of fame. So I guess we have to agree that when we talk about the Dukes of Hazard, we're not talking high art. But for a young Tom Elliott wearing his Dukes of Hazard wrist racer with a miniature version of the General Lee inside that would spring out from the plastic casing when you wound it up, the Dukes of Hazard was the best show in the world. It was one of many shows that gave me that romantic notion of America as the place where all of the adventure is. Things happen there bigger and better and more exciting than they happen here. Does that show hold up now? Probably not. I don't know. I don't really care. It was just there at the right time for me and was one of the things that started my love affair with everything American, a love that's never really left me. But of his time in the Twilight Zone, let's turn to Stuart Stanyard's book, Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone. Of the Twilight Zone in general, he said, Twilight Zone was a class act. I did an awful lot of westerns and everything you see, and they shot in 15 minutes for 45 cents, and you did all your own stunts, fist fights and everything, until you're ready to get killed and then they double you perhaps. But Twilight Zone was a whole different thing. They had the real professional writers. They had the real actors who had trained and had the experience needed to really give them a beautiful performance. That's why it was successful. This day and age, of course, the industry is full of personalities. And if you're over 30, you're not on the cutting edge and have no knowledge of the business. And of this episode in particular, Stuart Stanyard asks him, do you have any favourite moments or scenes from the last rites of Jeff Metalbank? And James Bess says, I'll tell you one that wasn't my favourite, was them closing me into a casket. And I took a pencil and put it into the lid and said, don't close it all the way down. And they'd leave that little pencil in there. I guess I was afraid of getting closed in that coffin. I do like James best in this. Some might think he's a little broad and chewing the scenery at times, but he does have that young, handsome country boy air about him. That was his stock in trade. And he is a very likeable presence. And as the episode wears on, we have several of these scenes where we see that the rumour mill is really starting to work around town. Yeah, why don't we just come out and say it? We're all thinking it. You say it, Peters. You got the floor. All right, I'll say it. You dead gum right, I'll say it. How do we know the man who got up and crawled out of that coffin is really Jeff Murderbank? I wouldn't talk like that, gentlemen. Could cause a lot of trouble. Well, I don't know. My grandma, she used to tell me about evil spirits roaming around the world trying to find a body to take over. She said they'd steal a corpse sometime before a man was good dead. That kind of talk's dangerous, Peters. Although I must confess, this throws a lot of dry kindling on a fire that's been smoldering in my brain ever since the funeral. So earlier on I mentioned about fiction that will depict a person coming back from the dead. But coming back, wrong. Stories like Stephen King's Pet Cemetery come to mind, where people and animals come back evil after being buried there. And even things like the show Buffy the Vampire Slayer played with this when Buffy herself was resurrected and thought that ever since, she just wasn't right. 
So sometimes, like in the case of Buffy, it can be quite subtle, or in the case of Pet Cemetery, quite extreme. And I'm going to jump ahead slightly here, because later on in the episode when the townsfolk confront Jeff, one of them says that they think he's a haint. So what exactly is a haint? So I got this from a website called keithdotson.com and it says, Haint is an old southern word for a specific type of ghost or evil spirit from the Carolina coast, but found in tales from various regions of the south. Belief in haints probably originated with the Gullah Getchee people, descendants of African slaves in the Carolina Low Country and Barrier Islands. In South Carolina, haints are malicious ghosts, often seeking to steal or harm naughty children. One online dictionary defines the word haint simply as a ghost, but the tradition is more complex than that. Haints even spawned their own colour. In her History of the Gullah Culture, Marissa Poliskak wrote, There are many Gullah traditions, customs and beliefs that are still being practised today. For instance, the Gullah believe in witchcraft and paint their doors haint blue in order to ward off evil spirits and witches. There are people in the Gullah community that are thought to have the power to protect people from evil. If the Gullah believe that their houses are haunted by evil spirits, or are worried that a spirit will soon try to inhabit their dwelling. They will paste newspaper on their walls in order to distract the spirits from doing any harm. And it goes on to say the word haint is also used outside the low country in other parts of the south with slightly different aspects from region to region. In Mississippi, haints could be ghosts, monsters or even witches. And just about everyone's grandmother or grandfather has a tale or two they can share about a haint. So they don't kind of play too heavily on any of this in the episode, I don't think, because I do feel that it's clearly trying to convince us that Jeff is just Jeff, and it's everyone else who has got the problem. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, one of the other main focuses of the episode is Jeff's relationship with his girlfriend, Comfort. Now initially Comfort seemed quite put off after Jeff's resurrection, but then she comes around. But although she came around, she's still getting pressure from her family about her relationship with Jeff. Dad Nabbit Comfort, now's the time to tell him. Right now. No, I don't tell you who to see, and you leave me alone. Well, maybe Ogram's right, dear. You know what everyone in the county is saying about him. Well, he's not visiting the county. He's visiting me. Well, you're just plain rotten stubborn. I bet all your kids are born with horns. Orgrim! So what is this episode about? Is it just a light-hearted comedy? Is it about the rumour mill that can get working and really damn a person without them really being involved in it? How the words of other people can damage a person's life? But there is one other interpretation that I came across. Now, I don't read other reviews when I'm researching a Twilight Zone episode, but sometimes, kind of out the corner of my eye, you'll just catch bits and pieces 
while you're reading other stuff. And one of the interpretations of this episode that I've come across is that it's actually about racism and that Jeff's return from the dead is essentially casting him as the outsider who is living amongst the townspeople. I'll speak a bit more about this when we sum up, but I can't find anything to really confirm that this is what Mr. Pittman was getting at. Perhaps if he had lived longer and been able to give interviews, we might have got to the bottom of that about what he was really going for with this. So unfortunately, that wasn't to be and we can only guess. So on the surface, I guess it does seem a bit bizarre how can a story about a group of white people be about racism. But okay, let's try and unpack this. This is the Twilight Zone, and part of Rod's mission statement was to kinda sneak things under the radar, so those important discussions that he wanted to bring to it would often be disguised as something else. So I guess in that respect, it could fit. So let's keep an eye on it and see how that develops. I could certainly see how it could be interpreted that way because some people are out and out hostile to Jeff. Some people on the surface accept him, but it is that very surface acceptance where they're scrutinizing everything he does. And then when Orgrim Gatewood, who I assume is Comfort's brother, says the line, if you have a baby, it'll come out with horns. I think you certainly could draw a parallel with the very real aspect of the situation in which a man or a woman would bring home a person of a different race to the dismay of their parents. What about the kids? If you have kids, they'll be tainted too, and that shame and stigma will stick around forever. Don't catch me. What's the matter with you? I'm sorry. Just the way them flowers died. Maybe you got poison on your hands. I ain't got no poison on my hands, and you know it. That's not what's bothering you. Everywhere I go, it's just the same. I expect it from the others, but not from you, Comfort. I'll tell you, I'm getting sick and tired of the way everybody treats me like a vampire. Jeff. Now, you tell me. Are you my girl or not? So before we sum up our episode, let's take a moment to meet the apple of Jeff Metalbank's eye, the wonderfully named Comfort Gatewood, who is played by Sherry Jackson, and she would have been about 20 at this time. Now the person who wrote her IMDb bio seems to be quite taken with her. He starts out by saying that the gorgeous chestnut mane Sherry Jackson began her promising career as a pleasant-looking child actress. When she was a child, she was a regular cast member on a successful TV sitcom called Make Room for Daddy. Now, I've never seen it, but it lasted 11 seasons, and considering that the seasons in those days had about 30 episodes in them, that's a pretty long-running show. And our besotted IMDb biographer goes on to say that after leaving the part, Sherry, somewhere along the way, grew out of a pert and pretty teen figure into a ravishing stunner. He goes on to say the image makeover was incredible, 
from a smart and vulnerable child to a bewitching and capricious vixen. Now, I'm not sure whether that's just the way her horny biographer writes it, but it does seem that when she grew up, she was kind of pigeonholed for her looks and was cast as things like the beach babe or the sexy brunette. But she did go on working until the 80s and she did the rounds on a lot of our favourite shows along the way. Star Trek, Batman, Lost in Space, Charlie's Angels, The Incredible Hulk, and the list goes on. Now although she shot to fame in the TV show Make Room for Daddy, her appearance in the Twilight Zone is more a case of Daddy making room for her, because she is the stepdaughter of our writer-director, Monty Pittman, and the Twilight Zone isn't the only show of his that she had a role in. He also cast her in 77 Sunset Strip, Maverick, and several other things. So is she any good here? Well, I guess she's as good as she can be with the part. She's written as this pretty vacant, easily led country girl, and she plays that just fine, so sure, why not? As far back as I can recollect, I used to chase him home from school every day like it was one of my regular chores. He never was no match for you, Argum. How come he bested you tonight? Cause it weren't Jeff Myrtle Bank I was fighting. Whoever it was, he had ring training. He hit in a different way than we do around here. That man is dangerous enough to kill with his bare hands. That's exactly what I'm afraid of, gentlemen. So as we come to our finale, we have this piece of business where Orgrim has a fight with Jeff and is actually beaten by Jeff. And it seems it's a way of tipping the story over the edge to the point where the townspeople make the decision to go after Jeff. So if we do subscribe to this being a story about race, then a bunch of men getting together to drive a person out of town or something worse would certainly fit the bill. And at the end of our story, Comfort goes to Jeff and she's quite conflicted and she gives him this warning. I wrote out to warn you. There's a group of men coming out from town. They're going to ask you to move out of the country. Well, now, how do you feel about that comfort? Well, I, I'm a fickle woman, Jeff. I'm the kind who believes whatever is said by them I'm with. I've heard some bad things said about you. And sometimes I ain't strong enough to turn a deep ear to them. But in my heart, I reckon I love you. Else I wouldn't be here with you now. So maybe you could see this about a person of a different race being in love with someone and it's the pressure from everyone else that's causing them problems rather than the relationship between the two of them. But when the townsfolk come for Jeff, he's had enough. And now it's time for him to fight back. We're going to stay. And that means just two things. One, if you're wrong about me, then you ain't got nothing to worry about. Because that means I'm just a poor old country boy by the name of Jeff Myrtlebank. But on the other hand, if you're right about me, then you better start treating me pretty nice. Because you just don't know all the kind of trouble I can cause you. So where does this episode sit in our Twilight Zone pecking order? The producer Buck Houghton in the Twilight Zone Companion said, 
I liked it very much. It was well done, very entertaining, wonderful country humour, some of those names, Orgrim, and I thought James Best was just wonderful, and that came out of Monty. James could do it, but Monty had to ask for it. But I guess for me, and I hadn't seen this episode for a long, long time, the experience of watching it for the first time was really one of waiting for something to happen. The body of the story itself is quite light. Long conversations where the plot doesn't so much move along as it does crawl along, and each scene is essentially telling us the same thing. Jeff is resurrected, and then everyone in town gets nervous. And I do like this aspect of it, the way everyone, even his parents, scrutinise everything Jeff does, no matter how small, and then get their heads together and come to their own conclusions, without actually sitting and speaking to Jeff, minor things are taken as absolute proof by the time they've went around the rumour mill, and then the men of the town decide on his fate, with nothing in the way of evidence, just their own conclusions. And then when the ending comes along, it doesn't exactly reward us for our patience. The ending is pretty low-key too. When the body is kind of slow and just ticks along, it does feel like maybe the conclusion is going to be a big thing that makes our wait worthwhile, but instead, it's pretty low-key as well. But I do think it's okay, it's mid-tier Twilight Zone for me overall, but let's get back to what it's really all about. Is it just that light comedy, or is it about how rumours can build and affect a person? And then we spoke earlier about it being an examination of prejudice, substituting being undead for race. And if it is the case, then I guess on that level it is pretty smart. And there do seem to be some things that would support that. The way Jeff is now held to a different standard than he was before. It's similar to what we talked about in the Planet of the Apes episode. The phenomenon of the eternal foreigner. The human character of Thomas was held to a different standard because he was from somewhere else. And he wasn't given the latitude that the apes had. So if an ape committed a crime, it might be because of upbringing, poverty, any number of things. But if Thomas committed a crime, it was because he was human. And this is a very real aspect of the more casual prejudice that exists in the real world, where outsiders might on the surface seem to be tolerated, but they're not given that latitude either and any wrongdoing by an individual is then projected onto their whole race or nationality rather than just being about the individual themselves. But is this really an examination of that? Because we get a whole episode of the townspeople pointing their finger at Jeff, saying that he is this thing, a haint or whatever. But the thing is, when he turns to comfort at the end and lights a match by just holding it, it turns out that they're right. Their fears aren't unfounded, because we then find out that Jeff is some sort of demon. So can we really say that they're wrong to be how they are, when in the end, 
it turns out that they're right. Well, maybe we can look at it this way. Jeff was different, but for whatever reason, he, or the thing that was now in the driver's seat of his body, was happy to come back, to go out to work each day. We don't really see any indication that he's there to cause any problems. So whatever he is, it's the actions of the townsfolk that get us to this point. It's only when everyone else pushes and pushes and pushes that Jeff finally says, if you keep pushing and you keep saying that I'm that thing, then okay, that's what I'll be and it's you who'll end up regretting it. If this assessment of the episode is true, then it's showing that if you marginalise and push someone into a corner, don't be surprised if eventually they start to push back. So is Monty Pittman's final tale just a ripping yarn with a funny little twist in the tale? There to entertain us, but not enlighten. And if it is, there's nothing wrong with that. Or has he done what Rod Serling designed the Twilight Zone to do? Slip in a story about racism under our noses in the guise of a gentle country comedy? Or is it just a gentle country comedy? Is the scene where Orgrim, who has bested Jeff in fights his whole life, finally gets beaten by him, symbolic of the oppressed, finally rising up against the oppressor? Or is it just a fight? I honestly don't know what the answer to that is. Sometimes when we look for something hard enough, we can project the thing that we're looking for onto pretty much anything. So I'll leave that one up to you. But I think I do have an admiration for Montgomery Pittman and what he did in his too short Twilight Zone career. I do think he knew the language of the show and the episodes that he wrote and directed weren't a million miles from what Rod Serling himself was doing, so it wouldn't be that much of a surprise to find that there was some kind of meaning in there. The sad thing is, Monty Pittman leaves us with these questions, but sadly, we'll never get the answers. But what we do get is an enjoyable enough Twilight Zone, and for that, Monty Pittman you have our thanks. Jeff and Comfort are still alive today, and their only son is a United States Senator. He's noted as an uncommonly shrewd politician, and some believe he must have gotten his education in the Twilight Zone. Okay, so that is another episode under our belt, and again, one where there wasn't much trivia. I do hope that down the line we start to get a bit more so I can put a bit more body in these episodes but as always we do what we can so let's have a read of some listener emails in submitted for your approval I've had a couple of emails from our old friend Al. Now he talks a lot about what's been on this show, but also on the Patreon show, so I'll just cut it down uh, to what's on this show. And Al says, I held off on the Shadow and Substance episode until I could read the stories. And he's talking about uh, J. Michael Straczynski 
a comic book run of the Twilight Zone comic. And he says, this reminds me that there is one episode of the podcast to which I never listened. The review of the Straczynski comics. At the time, I thought I'd wait until I read them, but I never did. Thanks to this episode, I'm now reading them, and I'll get to your review yet. Anyway, here are some comments on all sorts of things that you've covered. And then he talks about Shadow and Substance, the comic review I did with our good friend Zach Moore. And he says, Shadow and Substance, you and Zach were spot on with this series of stories, especially the comment that it feels like pages are missing. It is the strangest reading experience, it certainly is. Did the editors hack out pages here and there to fit the script into their page count? Or is the writer unfamiliar with transition? I too went back a few times certain that I'd missed a page. Most of the stories didn't do much for me, but I did enjoy cold calculation and initiation. With both good and bad stories here, there are some nice Twilight Zone references. I'm certain that someone refers to a Mr. Canamit in one of these stories, though I can't find it now. And how can you not love a story where the kids watch Rance McGrew? I enjoyed the ending of Initiation 2. At first it threw me, I thought, what, his mother is an Etch-a-Sketch squiggle? But the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. The twist with Cold Calculation should have been obvious, but I didn't tumble to it and I got a kick out of it. To answer Zach's question about lower life form, I think the aliens are superior enough that they view us in the present as lower life forms. Yes, they are drawn as humanoids in order to fool us, but you can think of them along the lines of the giants in The Little People, I suppose. And they certainly have a much longer lifespan than we do. One last thing, the vice president in Hangnail on a Monkey's Paw is pretty clearly based on Dick Cheney. I've told you many a time, Tom, that I most appreciate your podcast of episodes that I don't like. That is certainly true with A Piano in the House. I think this is a dreadful episode, simplistic and overdone, with a cartoonish main character who elicits no sympathy. Like a thing about machines with only one machine. You acknowledged all of that, but then you expanded the horizons with your look at the strong direction, which I had never noticed. And your appreciation of Barry Morse and Joan Hackett and Cyril Delavanti and Muriel Anders. I'm not sure I'd put Cyril Delavanti in that list. He was pretty over the top. I don't think I mentioned that. Um, and your journey to find consistency in the piano's influence. I enjoyed your podcast much more than I enjoyed the episode. Well done as always. After all, how can you not love a podcast that includes the Johnny Ringo theme song? I also appreciate the plug for presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And that's from our good friend Al. Well, thank you, Al. Um, not much to say on that. Some uh, good thoughts. I'm glad you agreed about the comics. I was kind of wondering whether it was just us, but I don't think it is now. So thank you, Al. Okay, I've had an email from friend of the show, Dane. Now, I actually thought I'd read this before, but uh, Dane has resent it. So maybe I didn't. And if I didn't, I do apologize. Sometimes uh, things will go to the spam box, as, as you said in your email. Or sometimes I, I do get a lot of correspondence and I will miss them. But he says, Hi Tom, I listened to your recent podcast on the episode 2 and there are a couple of points I'd like to bring up. 
when you mentioned Elizabeth Montgomery starring in Bewitched with Twilight's own actors, Dick York and Agnes Moorhead, you didn't mention David White, who was in I Sing the Body Electric. David played Larry Tate in Bewitched. He was Dick York's boss. I also wondered about your reference to today's Deb magazine. Deb was short for debutante, and it could have meant that women who reached a certain age were encouraged to join the military. If that was so, lots of women could have been soldiers instead of only a few. My last point is about the cone used in the opening credits. I always saw it as an optical illusion. Sometimes it was pointing away from you, sometimes it was pointing at you. People or situations could be going away from you or towards you. It was a very Twilight Zone kind of thing. Always enjoy the podcast. I appreciate all your hard work. Thanks for everything. And that is from Dane. Well, thank you, Dane. And your comment about the Deb thing in 2. Yeah, that really makes sense. So thank you for clearing that up. Okay, so that is our emails for this episode. I'll just mention a couple of things because... As you will know, a while ago now, I went to see the Twilight Zone stage play at the Almeida Theatre in London. And you could say I was a little mixed on a few things, but I was still very supportive of the show. I'm glad it got made. And, you know, for a Twilight Zone event to happen in England, where the actual show hasn't aired for many, many years, I, I think was a great thing. And quite strange for it to debut here and not over in the States where it's still on, but... There you go. I'm glad it happened anyway. But um, the good thing is, it's actually coming back to the stage again in London next year. And it's going to be in a bigger theatre this time, the Ambassadors Theatre. So clearly it must have been a hit last time round. Um, So I'm going to go again on the 6th of April. You'll remember that last time I met up with a really good friend of the show, James. Hopefully he will go again and we can chat about it again afterwards. But I think the thing is, and James brought this up in an email to me, you know, I think we both went there with maybe our thoughts on what a Twilight Zone stage play would be. And I'm not saying expectation killed it for us, because at the end of the day, I think I'm quite capable of saying, well, something's not what I expected, but I still enjoy it. But I do think there's something to be said for sometimes letting something sink in and going back to it with a fresh pair of eyes, you know, I know what it is now, and going and kind of just seeing if I enjoy it on those terms. So I'm really looking forward to going back and seeing it. I'm going to go and see it on the 6th of April. I hope that the Twilight Zone fans of England, and even people who aren't Twilight Zone fans, will go and enjoy it too, you know. Like I said, it might not have been quite the show I thought it would be, but... It's certainly not without merit, and I really can't wait to check it out again. So that's enough from me. If you want to get in touch with me and send some thoughts about any of the Twilight Zone episodes that we've covered, then email me at tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. If you want to help towards the hosting fees of the show and get extra content in the form of shows looking at the 80s, Twilight Zone, Night Gallery, and other Rod Serling projects, then go to patreon.com where you can get that extra content for a small monthly donation. Before I go, I would like to thank new iTunes reviewers Ken in St. Louis and Sailing Howard for your very kind iTunes reviews. Thank you so much. I also want to mention that the show is also available now on Spotify 
if that's how you choose to consume your podcast. So, so just search for the Twilight Zone podcast and there we are. And it's actually been picked up really well in, in quite a short time on Spotify. So I'm really quite pleased with that. And after a couple of low-key Twilight Zone episodes, the next one is maybe going back to one of the bigger names in the Twilight Zone canon. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what that is. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week we burrow deep into the most inner confines of Kookland and hopefully wind up dead center of the oddest portion thereof. We'll bring you a story called To Serve Man, written originally by Damon Knight. Now, if you've ever wondered how we'd react to the arrival of some honest to Pete saucers, next week's diet should be your meat. On the Twilight Zone, To Serve Man. is no longer hopeless. Many are now being saved. Help fight mental illness. Support your mental health association.